Now let's say you have a case where you want to be able to bury it and you can instead put it on the grand jury and say, oh, well, we tried, but these grand jurors didn't think we had enough, so we can't proceed. I'm not saying that's going to happen in this case, but I am alerting you to a possibility that we did not think about as to why you could go to the grand jury proceeding. Vilified, deified. It's hard to find anyone apathetic about rapper and actor Tupac Shakur. By the time of his passing, September 13, 1996, he had sold millions of records. In death, the prolific musical artist would sell millions more. It was clear to me how influential Tupac was, and I went in hard in reporting the case as a correspondent and producer on a primetime crime show. I was the first to secure the video of the now infamous beatdown at the MGM Grand, the first to get a hold of the search warrant affidavit detailing the gang warfare that erupted after Tupac was shot. Another first was securing interviews with the original Las Vegas Metro investigators. This podcast is called Tupac's Murder Was His Case, as in Brent Becker's. He's one of the original homicide investigators on the case, and he's spoken with me exclusively for the podcast. If you listened to the last episode, you know I pushed him to tell me everything he knew about the mysterious grand jury process, and I still wanted more. So we'll be taking a detour this episode, but one I believe will accelerate us on our journey of understanding by shedding some light on a process designed to be secretive. Lennon Ozizway reporting Tupac's murder was his case, season two, episode two, the grand jury. But if, if this is his thing. Oh, that, you know him? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that if, if this is his thing that he's going to work on, that's an advantage to the district attorney because he can, he's not going to have a lot of other cases to work on. The, some of these cold case retired detectives they can sink their teeth into things and maybe get through stuff quicker than like a um, regular homicide detective who has an ongoing, you know, getting more cases in every day. So the fact it's with a cold case detective might get you moving a little bit quicker. He's, he's a good detective. When it comes to the investigation of the murder of Tupac Shakur, you heard a lot last month after the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department executed a search warrant on a home in Henderson, Nevada, associated with Keefe D, a name familiar to me starting in the 1990s when I first started reporting on the case. Keefe D, of course, is the uncle of someone else heavily featured in the podcast, Orlando Anderson. Someone mentioned as a person of interest in Tupac's murder in the very first story I produced in 1996, and someone featured in the episode of this podcast called The Usual Suspect, someone I even met after he agreed to do an interview, only to come and meet my crew and me and then decline. With the news of the search warrant came news that a grand jury was reviewing the case or going to be reviewing the case, and I will say that after putting my ear to the ground, I've independently confirmed that a grand jury is taking this case on, if you're interested in all things Tupac, you likely know about Drake buying his crown ring. You've heard speculation about Suge Knight as a possible witness. And you've heard that the investigation got a jolt last month with the news of the search warrant. But then there really has not been any news about what's happening within the grand jury. And that's the way it's supposed to be by law. I've covered stories in courtrooms from Bordeaux, France, to Houston, Texas, to even Clark County, home to Las Vegas. But even when I was a cub reporter in San Diego, covering preliminary hearings and trials, the grand jury process was baffling to me. Even now, when federal grand juries have constantly been in the news. So for this episode, the goal is to shed some transparency on the intentionally opaque process and to talk about how that relates to KVD. My goal was to find someone in Clark County who could spill some tea about how the system works. 
And dear listeners, we're fortunate to get that chamomile from someone who has a perspective from the outside and the inside, at least as inside as you can be as a defense attorney. My guest is Chip Siegel. I'll make it clear up front. He is not representing Keefe D. However, Chip brings a certain depth of knowledge for this episode as a former Clark County prosecutor. From 1991 to 1997, he handled cases from misdemeanors to capital murder cases. In 1997, he did leave with a small firm for four years, and for more than 20 years, he's been on his own with his own law firm. He's the past president of Nevada Attorneys for Criminal Justice. He's been a hearing master for coroner inquests. He has been recognized by legislators to help draft new laws. Please welcome attorney Chip Siegel. When I was a deputy district attorney, I had used the grand jury. Uh, I've had clients who've been indicted. As a defense attorney, you are not going in front of the grand jury. I mean, technically, if one of your clients testifies, they might let you in there, but I have not had a client testify in front of the grand jury. I would tell you that grand juries are used very infrequently in the Clark County District Attorney's Office. I would guess maybe two to five percent at most of the cases go through the grand jury. Uh, A lot of times there are drug cases that would go through there. Um, sometimes there are cases they're having difficulties with. Sometimes, as in this case, they might use a cold case for an old case that allows them to go to the grand jury proceedings. I'll make it clear you're not representing anybody, as far as I know, connected to this case, including the target of the search warrant. But from what you see from afar, does it tell you anything about what's going on? No, uh, uh, as you said, I think the the important thing is I am not representing anybody even tangentially involved in anything dealing with the Tupac Shakur issue. It's not something that I follow on a day-to-day basis because, you know, within the courthouse, it's not something that we're hearing um, a lot about on a day-to-day basis. But I'm happy to discuss with you the grand jury proceedings how it works, what to expect, why it's used, the legality, and answer any of those questions. Well, I thank you very much for joining the podcast to talk about the grand jury process because it's very opaque. And I say that as someone who has covered courthouses from, you know, California to France. So I find it very much of a opaque process, but it's designed to be that way. Yeah. And each, you know, you have obviously the federal system and here in Clark County, we fall into the state system, which is completely different. You have 50 different states, all with different rules. Um, Nevada tends to, to give people more rights in front of a grand jury, even though it might not feel like it compared to other states. So we actually afford people more protections, but even so there's, it's so easy for a prosecutor to indict somebody uh, if they want to. And, And also just so you know, if they want to dump a case, they could go in front of the grand jury and just how they handle it and be able to say, you know, wash their hands of it and say, oh, we tried. You never know if, if that could be a reason too. Well, Hold up for just a minute. Sure. Sorry about that. No, that's that's fascinating in that normally people say you can indict a ham sandwich. Correct. So it's very easy. So as an outsider, the first thing you would think of is that if a prosecutor is taking a case to a grand jury, they want an indictment. But you're saying that it's also possible that a prosecutor doesn't want an indictment? Explain. Sure, I'm happy to. Let's change things around. Let's say that 
you've taken a look at things as a prosecutor, you realize there's public interest, but you also realize that, you know, this is just not something that we necessarily want for trial. But there's some public clamoring that keeps coming around and you just want to put it to bed. Well, if you go to the normal route, which is going in front of a judge in what's called a preliminary hearing, which is a full evidentiary hearing that uh, the defense is going to have access to, and people are going to be able to know everything that happens because it's in a public forum, then if you're a prosecutor and you're like, ah, I needed to do something with this case, but I really wanted some cover so I could say the case got dismissed, you're going to look you're going to look bad potentially in front of people if you went in front of a judge and did a sloppy job. But just think about it. If you're saying, I've got to do something with this case, I've got to get rid of it. And now everybody can kind of second guess the questions that were handled and how we did this. Well, if you went in front of a justice court judge and there's transcripts and people were able to see everything, that doesn't necessarily look so good. Now, let's say you have a case where you want to be able to bury it and you can instead put it on the grand jury and say, oh, well, we tried, but these grand jurors didn't think we had enough, so we can't proceed. I'm not saying that's going to happen in this case, but I am alerting you to a possibility that we did not think about as to why you could go to the grand jury proceeding. Okay, well, let's, you, you've mentioned it, you've gone over it a bit, but let's be perhaps a little bit more explicit about how a grand jury compares to the normal way, I, I've always considered it, is somebody's indicted, there's a preliminary hearing, which I've always described as a mini trial, yep. and then potentially going to trial. I, I just stepped over you and I apologize because if you, in, again, we're talking about the state of Nevada. Right. So I want to get everything specific to Clark County. Wonderful. So I, I, I always suggest let's think of a blue building and that is called justice court. And let's think of a yellow building and that's called the grand jury. And you have your choice if you want to get in front of a jury trial, you choose which building you want to go through. You want to go through the blue building in front of a judge or you want to go through a yellow building in front of the grand jury. So as you said, like 95 to 98 percent cases are going to go through the blue building. The state's going to file a document called a criminal complaint. The defense attorney is going to get all of the evidence that they're entitled to. A judge is going to hold a hearing. Witnesses are going to be called. The state will ask questions of the witnesses. The defense attorney will then ask questions called cross-examination, all with the goal of saying to the judge, there's not enough information, there's not enough evidence here, judge, that this case should get out of this building and in front of a jury trial. Okay, so remember, you got to go through that building in order to eventually get in front of a, a trial. Or so, the judge can say there is enough evidence. Yeah, the judge, the judge is the gatekeeper in the blue building. The judge sits there and says, yes, there's probable cause to believe that this person probably committed this crime and probably committed these crimes. And that's done after witnesses are called. And most importantly, there's cross-examination of those witnesses by the defendant's attorney. And if the defense attorney wanted to, the defense attorney could put on his own witnesses or her own witnesses. And of course, the district attorney could cross-examine those witnesses. And at the end of the hearing, that judge makes a determination, yes, there is enough evidence. You, might, you may proceed past this building and now take this case over to you know, a potential jury. That's the blue building. That happens 98% of the time. And that's going by something called a criminal complaint through a justice court judge where it is then bound over and the document that the state files is referred to as an information. That's how we do it here in Clark County. Okay. 
Now, the grand jury, which is secretive by law, yes. is quite different. That's correct. So now we're going to talk about this yellow building that we're going to call grand jury that they could decide to go to instead. The grand jury is a secret proceeding. By that, the defendant's attorney is not allowed to ask any questions of any witnesses. It is the district attorney and the district attorney only who ask questions of whatever witness is brought before the grand jury. And the, and the, and the witness is told afterwards they are not to discuss anything they testified about to anybody else. And then later on, there'll be a transcript, but it's secretive while it's going on. And the defendant has no ability to say, well, I want these questions asked. You know, ask them A, B, C, D, all these different things. They cannot do that. The best the defense attorney can do is say, well, there is what we call exculpatory evidence. That is evidence that would tend to show the person charged with the crime did not commit the crime. So the defense attorney could say to the district attorney handling the grand jury, I want you to present this exculpatory evidence. Now, it's the district attorney's decision as to whether they do that or they don't do that. And if they decide not to do it, that will become something for the trial court judge to decide whether the grand jury was done fairly. But for the most part, you're not going to get a lot of exculpatory evidence put in front of the grand jury. Additionally, the defendant does have the ability to go in front of the grand jury, but he's basically going there without the benefit of his attorney being able to ask any questions. So you're essentially sending your client in there, you know, basically naked, right? You're not, it would be rare to put in your, your client in front of the grand jury where you have no ability as a defense attorney to ask any questions and you're totally subject to whatever the district attorney wants to ask. So the thing about a grand jury is number one, the prosecutor controls all the questioning and they handle it that way. Number two, it is secret. Number three, there's no cross-examination, no input by the defense attorney to say, well, what about this? What about this? You know, all these different things the defendant might want to bring out through his attorney when questioning the witness. The other thing is, remember, this grand jury is what we use the term impaneled, impaneled for a period of one year. Now, they get used to seeing that prosecutor over and over and over and over again, and they develop a rapport with the prosecutor because that's the only attorney that they really get to do anything with. And so that's another advantage to a, to a district attorney is that, you know, it's totally playing in front of the home crowd. And so there's a lot of things that make it so easy for a prosecutor to get an indictment and move that case from nothing through that yellow building called the grand jury, getting a piece of paper called an indictment, and now going in front of that same trial court. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, would the transcripts, let me just be clear on it, would the transcripts be available then after? Correct. So what happens is, let's say a person is indicted. The transcripts are prepared and the defense attorney is allowed to look at all the transcripts and file something called a writ of habeas corpus. Essentially, it's to say, judge, taking a look at everything that was in front of the grand jury, either number one, there's not enough information, there's not, there's not enough evidence, there's not enough proof to show that probable cause happened and the grand jury made a mistake. So you could say, hey, there just wasn't enough evidence. Or you could try and argue that some of the things in front of the grand jury should never have been allowed in front of the grand jury. And if you get rid of that evidence, if you just put a big X through it and didn't consider it, 
that there is no longer probable cause. So if let's say hearsay was allowed in, that shouldn't have been allowed in. You get rid of that and say, is there still probable cause? Or whether the, you know, the, the grand jury made any errors, there could have been legal errors that for instance, the prosecutor did not present the law correctly to the grand jury. Or if let's say you have, um, you, you had this grand jury heard over multiple days and it turns out when you start looking at all the people who said that, yes, there was probable cause, you realize, wait a second, some of these people weren't present for some of these days and there's no indication that they read through the transcripts. So there are some technical things that you can do as a defense attorney to try and challenge what happened in front of the grand jury later on after the indictment. But again, it is so much easier for a prosecutor, which getting back to what you said to me, that you are aware of the expression that you could indict a ham sandwich. Now, there has, I'd like to get to the specifics of the case. We've been talking in general about the grand jury, but I'm interested in your observations being more specifically related to the murder of Tupac Shakur. Last month, there was a search warrant that was served on somebody related to a person I call the usual suspect, someone I reported on in 1996 when I first started covering this story. Now, they served a search warrant on the uncle of that individual, somebody known as Keefe D. What significance does it have that the search warrant was served? I've seen some reporting that said the grand jury is about to look at this or the grand jury is looking at this search warrant. Can you give me some context? Sure. So to make things easier, I'm going to refer to, I didn't catch the name, but I'm going to call that person Mr. X and then I'm going to call it uncle of Mr. X. So a judge signed a search warrant that authorized the police that there was probable cause to believe that the instrumentalities of some sort of crime could be found at that location, which is, uh, I think you told me, the house of the uncle of Mr. X. Right, so, under the name of the aunt, um, but okay. yes. We'll call it the house of X's uh, family, okay? So that means that the judge had to review something called an affidavit. So a search warrant is essentially made up for our purposes of three things. One, the place to be searched. We want to look at one main street and they describe what one main street looks like. It's a white house that has, you know, red shingles and a red front door and the number one on it and a welcome mat. Okay, It describes the place to be searched and we want to look for these things inside that house. So that's. That's what you're looking for. Number two, the most important thing, the meat, is the affidavit. That is the reason that the police or whoever gave information that caused the judge to say, you may look at one main street. And then finally is the return. And that is the property that was taken from one main street when they served the search warrant. So there would be really no reason to seek a search warrant if you did not care about a case. It just, why waste the time? So the fact that there was a search warrant certainly tickles my ears that somebody's taking a look at what's going on. Doesn't mean they're gonna do something, but it does mean somebody has gotten interested or more interested than they had been, let's say, before they served the search warrant. And again, we don't know what they found as a result of the search warrant and how that fits in to what the state thinks the case is worth or what this, whether the state thinks that we have the right person who we believe committed a crime that we could then charge by going through either the grand jury or by going through the preliminary hearing system through a justice court judge. 
the judge, by the way, who signed it was Jacqueline Bluth, I believe. Bluth. Her... Jacqueline Bluth, who for uh, a while was one of the district court judges who oversees uh, murder cases. She also, for a number of years, was a Clark County prosecutor. Okay. So in terms of what was found, and this was obtained by NBC News, USB drives, other like iPads, laptops, hard drives, um, and then some 40, uh, 40 caliber cartridges. Also a copy of a book written by this uncle, copies of a Vibe magazine about Tupac, some purported marijuana, which actually I wanted to ask about that because I think sure. it's legal in, in Las Vegas, so it doesn't say how much, but it seems to be a lot of things related to computers, newspaper articles, the marijuana, and also the, uh, the, the, uh, hard drives thoughts so again that's called the return so that's the property that was seized so we don't know what was being searched what they were what what the state or the police were hoping to find so a lot of times if they were expecting any records they might have said we want permission to take any computer equipment we want permission to take any firearms any ammunition, uh, anything that on its face seems to indicate a tie to the investigation of Tupac Shakur. Um, and so that is why they took those things. And then the next question would be, did the search warrant then authorize the police to look through all of this computerized information, or are they going to have to go back and get another search warrant? Oh, Have not... Sorry, if I can stop you right there. It does say in this document, the record obtained by NBC News, computers, storage devices, sure. notes, writing, ledgers, YouTube episodes. And I will say that there's more on YouTube than I know that the original detective who was able to get. There's a lot of information on YouTube. Manuscripts, movies concerning the murder of Tupac Shakur, Photos, movies, CDs, writings, cellular cellular telephones, the copy of the book, which I've said you can get on Amazon as well, and wonder why they had to get it. But papers, documents uh, to show possession and dominion over said premises, keys, envelopes, receipts, and so forth. So they did go in there with that. Yeah. So what they're going to do now is take a look at everything they found. And if they, as you said, found a hard drive, found USB drives. Now they've got to do the work of looking through there and seeing what on those hard drives, USB drives, magazine articles, YouTube videos that they watch. What is it that allows them to say, oh, we now have more evidence that we believe ties a particular person to the killing of Tupac and whether that was a criminal event. So they still have a lot more investigation, it sounds like, to go through. How much of the grand jury's job is to investigate as well? Or is this all in the hands of LVMPD and the DA's office? Well, the, the way that it works is the police department gathers all the evidence. They, the detectives will look through all the evidence put together reports, say to the district attorney, hey, look, here's more evidence that we believe we have. The district attorney will then review everything that the police gave them, and they will do their independent judgment, taking into account what the police think. They work with the detectives, but ultimately it's the call of the prosecutor to determine, okay, do we think we have enough to go forward? Do we think that we you know, know who did this? Do we think there's criminal liability? Do we think we can prove these things in front of a court beyond or in front of a jury beyond a reasonable doubt? And if they believe that they do and they believe they have the person, then they make the decision, okay, how do we proceed? Are we going to proceed through the grand jury process or are we going to 
proceed through the justice court going through a preliminary hearing process? Well, with my ears to the ground, I am pretty certain 90%, 99.9% that it is going through a grand jury process. So what next? Sure. So what next is a grand jury is seated for a duration, let's say one year. And during the one year, the district attorney can present whatever evidence, whatever evidence they would like on whatever case they would like. If it turns out that they get that the district attorney gets to the end of the one year with this particular grand jury, who's in the midst of an investigation under law, if they if there is sufficient evidence or reason, we'll call it, then a district court judge could allow a grand jury to continue to sit for up to an additional one year. So it's possible that they're in the midst of doing things in front of the grand jury that we're unaware of and that they're going to continue putting forward evidence in front of the grand jury in the hopes of getting an indictment. It's possible that they haven't gone to the grand jury and that they're still collecting all their evidence and that someday in the future they will go in front of a different grand jury. There's just a lot that we just don't know because of how the grand jury proceeding works. And also uh, you're dealing with a crime that does not have what's called a statute of limitation, meaning there is no race that the district attorney has to say, "Uh uh-oh, we better run this race or else we're not going to be allowed in the courthouse. Murder has no statute of limitation. They've waited 30 years. They could wait another five years, another 10 years. Obviously, the case tends to get weaker as it goes on. Witnesses, you know, witnesses get confused. Witnesses forget. Witnesses pass away. Witnesses can't be found. And then you Again, we haven't even talked about this, but the other side of it is when they do file charges, if they file charges, whatever attorney, defense attorney is handling it is going to say, wait a second, the state waited so long to prosecute this person, Mr. Defendant, that Mr. Defendant no longer has the ability to present his defense because you waited so long. So that's something else that the state has to be aware of. Because besides everything else you and I have talked about, you know, the defense attorney is going to say, wait a second, this took so long. This is unfair. This prejudiced my client's ability to raise a defense. But then you have a very unique situation in which the potential defendant wrote a book slash memoir slash confession. Yes, that, uh, you know, (laughs) I don't know why somebody would do that, but I'll take your word for it. Uh, They still, they being the state, still needs to demonstrate, even if a person says, yes, I'm the one who did it, the, the state needs to still prove independent of that person's admission, there is some evidence that ties the person into the crime. Because what you don't want is you don't want somebody standing up and saying, oh, yeah, I'm the one who killed, you know, John F. Kennedy Jr. And then you take a look at everything. You say, wait a second, that's impossible. This person wasn't anywhere near Dallas back on that date and time. So it's the protections against somebody who one might be a little bit, um, I don't want to say insane, that might not be the right term, but like narcissistic to a degree that they're going to make statements about themselves that we could then call puffery and to make themselves look bigger than they really are. Some people lie. Some people have very weird, weird motivations that most rational people don't have. My point is, it's just not enough to say, hey, this person wrote a book and this person said he did it. End of story. Let's just lock them up. There needs to be some sort of independent corroboration. Doesn't have to be a whole heck of a lot. And I would love to tell you what the exact standard is, but your standard always depends upon the judge. 
And so if you're that interested, it's called corpus delecti. So basically there needs to be something else tying the person to the crime. In this case, there was an affidavit out of Compton, which was the residence of both the person whose home, his family home was searched and the person I call the usual suspect, Orlando Anderson, that's where they were living. And in this affidavit, there are several CRIs, confidential, reliable informants, who do point to Orlando and Keefe D, Mr. X's uncle. They're both mentioned. And that was in some of my original reporting back in 1996. So there there does seem to be some corroboration. Yeah, again, I'm gonna play defense attorney for a second. Go. But whenever I hear CRI, there's a big difference between a CRI and an IRI, confidential reliable informant versus identified reliable informant, right? (laughs) There's a big difference between those things. Um, and also the fact that the state hasn't moved in this long, if somebody's made all these admissions and they wrote a book about it, then you've got to wonder if it was this darn easy, what's taken so long, right? Well, the point you make about the CRI is a point that Brent Becker, who was one of the original investigators, said that gave them pause. And in the years that he investigated the case, they never went to the DA. I asked him that specifically because they didn't feel that they had enough. Yeah. But with this confession and this book in 2019, the question, as you say, would be, why now? Do you have any idea, any, any inkling why now? Uh, no, I, I haven't the slightest. I mean, I, I, really, I really have no idea. And, nor, nor do I. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to say, oh, I've got some great insight for you. I have no idea. Witnesses. What sort of witnesses in this case, many of them are dead, who were there. There is one witness who was in the car with Tupac, driving the car, Suge Knight, who I also interviewed. When I interviewed him, he said that this Mr. X was the person mentioned in the affidavit, the search warrant affidavit. But over the years, he's changed his story. Is that a witness, a prosecutor, and speaking as a prosecutor now, that you'd want to put in front of a grand jury? Well, I mean, in front of a grand jury or in front of a, a regular jury? I mean, in front of the grand jury is not that big of a deal, right? Because there's going to be really no defense attorney asking questions of, of Suge Knight in that situation that's going to be embarrassing to him or really challenge him. So it's not there. You've got to think in front of a jury, you know, does my case rely on this person? What, what, what percentage of importance is this person? Is this just like, you know, just a little bit important or, you know, again, we're going to make a pizza and we're going to make, uh, you know, a, a, a all meat pizza. OK, like, is this person the oregano or is this person the sausage? Right. If it's the oregano, then you're like, OK, I still got the sausage. I still got the pepperoni, still got the tomato, still got the cheese. I still got the tomato sauce. I can still make a pizza. And I'm not too worried about, you know, the oregano being a little bit off, right? Because he's just a small part of it. But if this person is all your pork product, then you're not going to have very much of a good pizza if that person is not a good witness. So it really just depends how important any particular witness is. And I don't know those things. I don't know what the state has. Um, Certainly any statements that a witness makes that contradicts what they're telling the jury, you better believe is going to be brought in. Now, it helps for the state that if he made statements that are good for the state under oath and those other statements were not made under oath, 
So that gives them maybe a little bit more to work on. But again, I mean, I don't know how much a jury is really going to care about that if a person's made five different versions of the same statement, the same event. And, and that's something that, you know, you said there was a detective way back when who was concerned about the reliability of everybody. Maybe that's what he was concerned about. In terms what I was talking about, uh, Suge Knight as a potential grand jury witness and so that that was that and as I said he's changed his story to even saying that Tupac is still alive but so sorry if that me, was a, I apologize you you can't remember just getting past the grand jury that's not what a prosecutor should be looking at ethically the question for a prosecutor is looking at everything can i prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt it should never be can i push this past a grand jury so when you're looking at a witness even though you know you can put him on in front of a grand jury and push it past that line you know you're talking about the difference of getting a first down which is a grand jury versus a touchdown which is in front of a, an actual jury trial and you're going to need those witnesses that you relied upon in the grand jury to to get all the way in front of a real jury trial with a touchdown with a touchdown okay because there was another witness i was wondering about as a possibility who was a very good friend of mr x okay. who also is currently imprisoned because of a shootout with Mr. X and Mr. X died in that shootout. And even though his friend died, he was still imprisoned for that. And so wondering, as we go off into the sunset, wondering about a case where four men are in a car, one man has identified all the four men in the car, including his nephew, Mr. X, that individual, has also said that he handed the gun to his nephew and you just wonder about his culpability in, again, those are admissions, but your take on that. Okay. I'm, I'm, maybe I didn't quite understand. So we have four people in the car. Correct. One of the, per, one person is deceased. Actually two, three are. Three He's the last man standing, the, the, the person who had the search warrant. Okay. Well, you, you got to believe that you're going to lay everything off on the three dead people because they're not coming in to testify, right? And so your defense is going to be, wait a second, you know, I didn't do this. Somebody else in the car did it. I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was just surprised. I have no idea. Well, why did you write a book about these things? Well, it was 28 years later. I needed some money. I know everybody's really interested in this. What a great way to make a buck. I didn't realize that, you know, all these different things. But if you really take a look at the evidence, I'm not the person who did it. It was one of these other people. And that's probably why they need things like ballistics. They, you know, they need they need something to tie Mr. X into the crime in, from what you're telling me, other than his writing a book to try and make some money 28 years later. Right, Mr. X's uncle. Yeah, Mr. X's uncle. So, so in closing, what should we be looking for? What should we, what should we be alert for? Should we expect something to come down in the next week? I know you're not a soothsayer. Yeah, I mean, I am. I, I have no. I, I mean, I have no idea. And, and well, I, I'd be surprised. The reason I'd be surprised is you just explained to me earlier that this search warrant yielded all kinds of computer records, and in general, it takes a while to get through right. the computer records. And if you know, if you're the if you're the state, it's like, look, what's the difference between 30 years and 32 years? Let's have all of our ducks in a row. Now, my guess 
is that, uh, and you might know that, I, I'm, I think you know this, is there a cold case detective who's working on it for Metropolitan Police Department? Yes. Who's that? His name is Moog. The last name is Moog. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Clifford Moog. Yeah, so if, the, if Detective Moog is, is retired, and this is kind of all that he is, I don't want to say all, but if, if this is his thing. Oh, that, you know him? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that if, if this is his thing that he's going to work on, that's an advantage to the district attorney because he can, he's not going to have a lot of other cases to work on. The, some of these cold case retired detectives, they can sink their teeth into things and maybe get through stuff quicker than like a um, regular homicide detective who has an ongoing, you know, getting more cases in every day. So the fact is with a cold case detective might get you moving a little bit quicker. Yeah, Detective Moog, he's, he's a good detective. Very, uh, that, that's an extra bonus because I've been wondering about him because they've been very closed mouth about everything, which as Brent Becker, one of the original investigators said, is something you want to do in a case like this, especially dealing with the grand jury. I, I, I promise to let you go, but one yeah. final question. Go ahead. Do you think the grand jury system is something that should still be in existence, considering you talk about the majority, 90 plus percent, don't go the grand jury route. And another statistic is 90 plus percent lead to indictments of cases that go to grand juries. Do you think that grand juries are something, and as speaking as a prosecutor and a defense attorney, should they have a, a bright future? Uh, well, okay, so I'm gonna work the second statistic. I, I don't know if there's really a whole lot of statistical difference between the percentage of cases that get what's called true build, meaning the grand jury stamps their approval and says, let's go for it. Right. And when there's ultimately a justice court judge who hears all the evidence, I don't know if there's really that much of a difference at all. As a matter of fact, I could tell you about um, a case here that had a little bit of notoriety um, where the grand jury said, no, there's not enough. And the judge said, yeah, there is probable cause. So in that case, the grand jury was actually more defense oriented than the justice court judge was. So I, I'm not going to look at the percentage of it. Here's as a practicing attorney in Clark County, my beef, I would say, if I was going to, if I, if you want to give me the argument why I don't like the grand jury process, this is the reason. Number one, there are so many cases in the system. And as you know, 98% of all cases that are ever brought resolve short of a jury trial. Right. So you're talking about 2% of cases. When you go through the justice court, probably 85 to 90% of all cases resolve in the justice court level because the defense attorney and the prosecutor can have some sort of meaningful discussion over what is the value of the case. The other thing is when there aren't agreements, so now we're in the 10 to 15% cases, there's usually because there's not a meeting of the minds. And the not the meeting of the minds is because either, number one, you have a prosecutor who doesn't know what his case is worth. Number two, you have a defendant who just doesn't understand and needs to have an idea of what goes on in court and hear actual live witnesses testify. Or number three, you have a defense attorney who's overvalued his case. And by having a preliminary hearing, you get to cut through a lot of those things because the prosecutor might think, oh, this witness is a great witness, put them on the stand, and you know they're as reliable as a wet paper towel. <laughs> and then you might have, conversely, 
the defense attorney thinking, I'm going to shred this witness. And then this witness gets on there and it's like, whoa, wait a second. This wasn't in the police reports and this person's a really good witness. And then you turn to your client and say, wait a second, you didn't tell me about all these extra things. And then everybody realizes the case should resolve. Or you have the justice court judge who's like, look, guys, women, get, get over here. And they call you up to the bench and they say, why aren't you guys resolving this case? This does not belong in front of a jury. And sometimes the justice court judge steps in and says, you know, do something with this case. So the, the justice court procedure while admittedly as a prosecutor was more difficult, it's a great funneling system. And it's also a good training ground for new deputy district attorneys because they have to ask questions. They have to be subject to the to cross-examination of their witnesses. They, they have to bring things forward in the legal manner, meaning they can't use hearsay. They have to lay proper foundations objections can be made. It's a great, when I was a young DA, you go against an experienced defense attorney and they put you through your paces. You realize, wow, I've got a lot to learn. I, I need to do a better job. If you're in front of a grand jury, you have no idea. You don't know if your witness is any good. You don't know if you really know what you're doing. You don't know the value of your case. The defense attorney doesn't know the value of the case. The defendant doesn't know the value of the case. So the expediency or the ease of going through the grand jury, I don't think it, it's worth it. Now, there is a subset of cases where I didn't have a problem with it. And those we used to, the drug laws, as you know, used to be a lot different. And so there were a lot of drug cases that were like, okay, we can, you know, they just move them through. I, I didn't have a, a whole heck of a lot of heartburn over that. But a case like this, where it's 30 years old and you're relying on witnesses that might not be any good. If I'm a prosecutor, I, I, I might want to know how these witnesses are going to stack up. So, yes, they can get the case moving forward, but they might not have a good idea of the value of their case. And they might not be able to. Um, this is the last thing that I, I should have mentioned earlier. When you go in front of a justice court judge and you hold the preliminary hearing, there's cross-examination. If that witness is not available under Nevada law, the state at, in front of a jury or the defense in front of a jury can use that transcript. And they can have somebody read the transcript of the preliminary hearing because there's cross-examination. When you go to a grand jury, they cannot use that transcript. And so you also run the risk of, you know, a case that's 30 years old with 30 year old witnesses all of a sudden in front of a jury trial, that person might not be there and you're not going to be able to use their testimony. So there's, I'm not a big fan of the grand jury. I, maybe I, that comes through in my statements to you, but I, I'm not a fan of the grand jury system. I, I don't, I don't think it's very good. I thank you for illuminating what you can <laughs> about the grand jury, because I, I said this when I started off as a reporter and started covering cases in court rooms in San Diego, I, I was saying then I don't really get the grand jury. I understand preliminary hearings. Thank you for letting me understand it quite a bit more today. My pleasure. You take care. You too. Thank you, dear listeners, for joining us. And I want to say, I want to apologize to Detective Clifford. I think I got that right, but I believe I pronounced his last name incorrectly. It's Mog. So, Mog, Detective Mog. I'm Lana Nozizwe reporting Tupac's Murder Was His Case was created, produced, written, and hosted by Lana Nozizwe. That's me. I also created the artwork and music. And if you'd like to get extra content, go to TupacMurderPodcast.com. Coming up next, well, I really don't know what's coming up next because as we just discussed, the grand jury process is very mysterious, but I will be on it. And when there's time for a new episode, you know, I'm going to drop 
You've been listening to Leonard Azizwe reporting. Tupac's murder was his case. An Azizwe T. original. All rights reserved.